And look, we're continuing in this um, sermon series we're doing in the book of Luke. And today we're actually going through the whole of chapter 8, though we only had sections of it read out just for, um, for brevity. And as we look at it, one of the great themes that comes out in this passage is Jesus' salvation. Now, I was at the cinema recently um, for only the second time since COVID has eased a little bit and we've been able to go back to the cinema. And um, I was with a friend and we were um, watching the trailers in the first kind of five minutes before the film kicked in. And there was a trailer for an upcoming film called Moonfall. And it's not a particularly subtle affair. I mean, it kind of does what it says on the tin. It's one of the disaster movies, you know, the apocalypse, end of the world type thing. And um, the way the world is going to end in this disaster movie is by the moon falling on us on Earth. Um, I imagine it's a highbrow cinematic experience, right? And I, I turned to my friend and we both commented, you know, that's a new way to destroy the world that hasn't been explored in the cinema. And the reason we talked about that was because over the last five or ten years, it wouldn't have escaped your notice, that we've had the global apocalypse played out on our silver screens in all manner of ways, from aliens to zombies to earthquakes. You know, there's this kind of angst that's played out, isn't there, about how the world is going to end and when the world is going to end, which is so gripping us popular in the imagination that it keeps coming out in numerous films. So if you want to go and see the moon falling on the earth, catch that in the early spring. Now, in an interesting interview in the Harvard Gazette, um, a, a thinker around um, social issues, Christopher Robichaud, um, suggested why this angst is played out in films and in books as well. He said this, what these films and these books allow us to do right now is to look at other individuals in exaggerated but similar types of situations at enough of a distance where we can process it. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the films give us an opportunity to work out our real-world angst by it being slightly exaggerated, it's not realistic, the moon hopefully is not going to fall on the earth if that's news to you, but it enables us to work out our angst, our fears about it. And that's a more serious point, isn't it? Because our angst about the fragility of the world we live in is at an all-time high. There was a study done across seven countries in 2020 that showed that the heightened levels of anxiety about the world are now 36% of adults feel a heightened sense of anxiety about the plight of our world. And so therefore, as we come to a passage where we see in the passage Jesus deal with some of the worst things that we can face in the world, it's particularly poignant. This is a passage from chapter 7 through to chapter 8 where the word for salvation um, or to be saved in Greek, sozo, comes up five times very densely here. And four of those times are in um, chapter 8. For example, chapter 8, verse 48, when Jesus talks to the woman, he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. It's translated healed you, go in peace. And chapter 8, verse 50, he says, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed, but literally the word is saved. So salvation is the great theme, the nature of Jesus' salvation, what it can achieve, and also how we respond to that salvation. And look, I don't know where you're at this morning, whether it's the alarming news of the riots in Europe as COVID cases um, you know, go up again, whether it's that persistent sense of concern for our political systems, whether it's concern for the Chinese tennis player, and you're kind of thinking, what about, you know, global shifts in power and the rise of China? I mean, there's lots of potential sources of anxiety, aren't there? Well, what I want us to see this morning is the nature of Jesus' salvation, and then also to really think about how we respond to that. Because here's the thing, responding to Jesus' salvation isn't just a one-time event you do once you pray a prayer, and that's you being a Christian. 
It's an ongoing journey that we walk out as Christians, as we understand more and more what He's done for us, and we appropriate that into our lives. So come with me. Let's look at the, um, at the passage, and let's, first of all, we're going to um, look at Jesus' salvation. Now, just a word on how this passage is structured. Um, after the Sermon on the Plain that we had in chapter 6, we get a new section starting in chapter 7. Luke's quite helpful in kind of marking out his material. He has these text markers, and you get one in chapter 7, verse 1, that kind of shows us this is the beginning of a new section. Chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And straight after, we get two salvation events, and then we get sandwiched in the middle with the parable of the sower, how people respond, a kind of a diagnosis of the different types of response. It's the kind of meat in the sandwich. And then at the end of chapter 8, we now get four more salvation events. So it's kind of salvation, salvation, sandwiched in the middle, the response to Jesus' gospel about salvation. Okay, so we're going to think about Jesus' salvation, and then we'll think about the response and look at the parable of the sower as we seek to apply it to ourselves. But first of all, I want us to look at the power of Jesus' salvation in verses 22 to 56, because there are four incidents here. First of all, Jesus calms a storm. Then Jesus deals with a man who is demon-possessed. Then Jesus heals a woman from 12 years of a stubborn, horrendous physical ailment of bleeding. And then Jesus deals with arguably the toughest one of all, death. And what all of these four salvation events have in common is the severity of the things Jesus is dealing with. Let's think first of all about the calming of the storm. Did you know that um, seven of the disciples were fishermen? And if you've worked with people who work outdoors or fishermen, or people like, they're generally pretty hardy folk. In other words, they're not easily scared. They're not the type of people who exaggerate. I know we joke about fishermen and it was this big and all that stuff, but you know, if you actually meet someone who does work you know, as a fisherman, then they're hard. They have to be. They're dealing with the elements. So ask yourself this question. What must it have taken for these seven hardened fishermen to be so alarmed at the severity of the storm that they thought this was it, they were going to die? This was a one-off. They'd never seen anything like this before. They're at their wit's end, nothing they can do. Master, master, we're going to drown, they say. In other words, this is a very severe storm. But Jesus remarkably stands up and rebukes the storm like a naughty child. And whereas any of us will know that it takes hours, sometimes days, for big waves to die down, instantly, with a kind of chilling authority, all is calm. Then you come to the demon-possessed man, and we're told a number of things about him. We're told in chapter 8, verse 30, when Jesus asks in his name, the demons respond, legion, because we are many. In other words, this isn't just one demon, which would be overwhelming enough. This is a legion. This is many demons. And let me just pause for a moment, because if you're a guest here, or you, know, you might be thinking, demons, really? Come on. I mean, this is a man who's clearly mentally unwell. And, you know, this is what the first century they didn't fully understand, so they ascribed it to spiritual forces. But we don't believe that today, do we? Well, look, let me just say, my mother-in-law is a psychiatrist. Yes, that does make her very intimidating. Um, but she's also a Christian believer. In other words, she believes very much in the spiritual realm, whilst also being a lifelong practitioner in psychiatry. And she's very clear when I talk with her that there is both the spiritual and the physical and mental realm. And they're integrated so it may well be that this man was very mentally disturbed, but that's not the full picture. He was also 
undergoing spiritual possession. They were both and, they interact with one another. And I guess one of the questions for you, if you're skeptical about the spiritual realm, is do you really believe that all we are as human beings is a sack of flesh, no soul, that's all we are, no spiritual dimension? That's pretty brutal, isn't it? I'd love to talk to you more afterwards, but the Bible is very clear, we're spiritual and mental and physical, mind, body, will, all these things together, and soul. And so it was for this man, and he was demon-possessed. And such is the power of the demons that they would break iron shackles. In other words, everything in the text is saying how overwhelming it is. But notice, when they come to Jesus, we're told that they cower before him. They beg Jesus. Such is Jesus' overwhelming power and authority. This is no, you know, round-for-round battle. This is over before the bell is even rung. Jesus rebukes them, casts them out. He deals with it so easily. Then we come to the woman, and we're told that she has been bleeding for 12 years. And chapter 8, verse 43, no one could heal her. Many had clearly tried. But it's amazing, just the touch, I mean, the beauty of it, just the touch of Jesus' hem heals her instantly. Such is the power that's coming out from him. And then the hardest one of all, Jairus' daughter. I mean, it was hard enough when she was at the point of death, but then the finality of death. And yet he raises that little girl up, just like I raise my little children up in the morning. Morning, love, time to get up, jump out of bed. They're, by the way, they're normally up well before, but you know, on the rare occasion when they have a lion and we're grateful for it, it's just so easy. And Jesus just raises a girl back to life like that. Do you just see the power of this man? Do you see the power of salvation? He confronts the worst the world has to throw at us a disordered creation that's totally overwhelming, demon possession, a whole legion of demons, a stubborn disease and sickness that's been there for 12 years that no one can heal, and death, the greatest enemy of all. And in all of them, there's no stand back, I need to roll my sleeves up and get into this. No, it's just, it's just a word, it's just a touch. He's just, oh, he's just so powerful. That's how easy it is for this man this Messiah, Jesus Christ. But notice not just the power of it, but also the compassion of it, because in our experience, most human beings that are powerful are distant and remote or hard and difficult, right? It's very, very unusual to find someone who's very, very powerful, but also has the tenderness and the gentleness and the compassion that Jesus shows. And I want to particularly zoom in on the way he interacts with the woman because she is fragile, and everything in the text speaks that. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 44. Chapter 8, verse 44. She came up behind Jesus, just touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Do you see her timidity? Do you see her vulnerability? Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, which tells you that she wanted to go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. The fear for this woman. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. And listen to this. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's a slightly unusual interaction, right? I mean, first of all, you've got Jesus saying, who touched me? And you kind of think, don't you know? And 
Then you've got this woman who's clearly wanting to go about her business in complete anonymity, and that's the whole point. That's why she does it when the crowd's around. But Jesus draws attention to her, the very thing she doesn't want to do, and you're thinking, why does he do that? But then if you think he's being harsh, he speaks so tenderly to her. So what's going on? Well, she wants to be anonymous, but Jesus knows that if he's really going to restore her, if he's really going to save her, heal her, he needs to deal with more than just her physical ailment, as bad as that is. In the Jewish society, if a woman was bleeding, she was ceremonially for a time cut off from temple worship. But this woman has therefore been cut off from temple worship for 12 years. And of course, temple worship in Judaism wasn't just about the religious life of the community, though it was at least that, but it's also the civic life, the social life. So this woman has been cut off from not only from being able to worship God with us, but from her community. She's been ostracized for 12 years, and she's been doing everything she can to try to get it back, but no one's been able to heal her. And so Jesus knows that if he's going to restore her, he doesn't just need to deal with her ailment, but he also needs to restore her to the community she's been cut off from. And so that's why, I suggest to you, he draws attention to her. He draws her out because if she just touches his hem and it goes away healed, what about the restoration with the community? But he, as a Messiah figure, as a rabbi figure at a minimum, Messiah at maximum, his words carry enormous weight. And so when he draws attention to her, look at how he speaks to her in front of all the people. Not woman, not some remote, distant daughter. Ugh. Intimacy, love, care, restoration. And then he says, your faith has healed you. Now everyone hears it. Everyone knows she's reinstated in a traditional society go in peace. In other words, that's him saying, if I bless you and I send you away in peace, let no one bring any trouble to you anymore. She's fully restored. You see the compassion of this man. You see how Jesus uses his power not to further his own agenda, but to further our agenda, her agenda, with great compassion, great gentleness. You know, as a parent, when you're dealing with a child that's really upset, one of the things that I've learned over the last few years is that there's no point standing there and trying to kind of dispense advice from six foot or so, you know, down to a little child. What you have to do is you have to gentle yourself. That power that you have as a parent needs to be um, brought low. Physically, you actually need to kneel down on the ground alongside your child, come down to their level, look them in the eye. But physically, you need to extend your hands and touch them with compassion to show them and reassure them it's okay. Vocally, you need to soften your voice down to a child's level. And only then, when you're fully engaged in that level, can you then use your wisdom and the authority you have as a parent to restore them, right? We know that as good parents. How much more with the Son of Man? He doesn't boom from on high. He doesn't remain distant, just dispensing kind of salvation you know, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, but nowhere near us. He comes down to our level. He stoops down. He softens his voice. He draws alongside us. He allows us to touch him. That's what the incarnation is about. Emmanuel, right? God with us. Not God distant from us. Not God merely above us, but God with us, alongside us. No less powerful. He can calm a storm with a word. He can raise a child as easily as you and I wake up a child in the morning. Oh, but the compassion and the gentleness, isn't it beautiful? 
And could it be that one of the reasons that we as a generation feel such angst about the world is not necessarily because the problems of this generation are any worse than they've been? I mean, I'm not trivializing things, but there have been world wars. There's been the Cuban Missile Crisis before. This generation is facing things which are sadly too familiar in our world. So why do we feel such angst about them? Well, maybe the difference is we as a generation think we're the ones who've got to fix it. And so we're... We're like Atlas trying to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, constantly thinking if we fail, then where's salvation going to come from? But we're not made to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. And so Jesus steps in with all of that power and authority, but equally all that compassion. He says, my friend, give your burdens to me. I'm the only one who can save. And I will. I will. Trust me with it. That brings us then secondly to the response to Jesus' salvation. And for that, we're going to look at the parable of the sower. Verses 1 to 21, let's zoom in particularly on chapter 8, verse 5. You might be familiar with this parable, but it's always worth reflecting on. Verse 5. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. It shouldn't really be called the parable of the sower. It's kind of a misnomer um, that we've given to it. It should really be called the parable of the soil because that's where all the attention is on. Not on the sower, but really on the soil. And there are four types of soil, aren't there? And only one of them leads to any fruitfulness. Three types of soil lead eventually to the seed not growing at all. And the soil here is, um, is an illustration, a parable for the human heart, how we receive God's word about salvation, how we receive the good news that Jesus is the Savior, come into the world with great power and great compassion. How do we respond to that good news, that gospel? That's what this is all about. And in three instances, which is, by the way, just worth reflecting on realistic assumptions about how many people respond when you talk to people about this, in three instances, it goes nowhere in the end, in the final analysis. The first seed um, falls on a hard heart, hardened soil. It just bounces off the surface. There's almost this instantaneous dismissal, a hard heart that won't engage with the reality the truth and the beauty of what is being talked about in Jesus' salvation. The second soil is a shallow heart. I mean, the seed does seem to kind of get implanted a little bit, but ultimately the plants wither and have no moisture because it doesn't have the roots to it. The third seed falls on a divided heart. Yeah, the seed does take some root, but there are also weeds in the soil. The weeds, we're told by Jesus, stand for um, the kind of concerns of the world, life's worries, riches, and pleasures, verse 14. In other words, the dividedness of the heart that is not fully devoted to Jesus sees him as all and everything snatches it away. So only the fourth soil yields any fruit. And what is that soil? What characterizes it? Well, I put it to you that it's characterized by all the things the other soils are not. In other words, this is a soft, deep, and devoted heart. You want to know the type of listeners that Jesus is looking for? Is your heart soft? Is it deep? In other words, does it really get to the things that really matter? Your deep loves, the hopes and aspirations, your fears. 
Does it get deep or does it stay on the surface? Because if it just stays on the surface, then when difficulties come, as they always do in life, it will be snatched away. And is your heart devoted or is it divided? Because a divided heart always says, I will follow Jesus if, and there's always a condition, I'll follow Jesus if my career flourishes. I'll follow Jesus if I'm spoken well of by my peer group. I'll follow Jesus if I maintain my health and life goes right for me. I'll follow Jesus if I'm popular, people speak well of me, whatever it is. A divided heart always has a condition in it. And the problem is, is that those weeds, those conditions, those other things that compete for our affections eventually, over the long-term analysis, strangle out the faith and stop it really taking root. So I can ask you, do you have a soft, deep, and devoted heart? that says, as Habakkuk 3.18 says, though the fig tree does not bud and no fruit is on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the sheep are cut off from the fold and no cattle are in the stalls, even then, yet will I praise the Lord. Now, what I want to do in the last few minutes before we um, close and pray this in is I really want you to notice on what makes receiving the Word of God with a soft, deep, and devoted hearts so difficult, so challenging. And I really want to be quite granular here. Because do you notice in all four of the salvation events, two things that make it so difficult? The first one is the pain of the events, and the second one is the delay in the events, the delay of the salvation. And this is where it really bites. Because in theory, we'll look at this and we say, yeah, I mean, none of us say, I want a hard, divided, and shallow heart. Yeah, no one says, yeah, I want afterwards. How's your heart? I'm just delighted it's shallow. Thank you very much. No, none of us are going to say that. So why is this so difficult? Well, none of us start that way. Few of us start with just a hard heart. Most of us at least, you know, kind of get some engagement, otherwise we probably wouldn't be here. But your heart can become shallow and divided over a period of time, particularly when you see how painful it is, particularly when you see the delay. Do you notice in all of these four situations just how painful the situations are? I mean, chapter 8, verse 24, the disciples say to Jesus... Master, master, don't you care? We are going to drown. In other words, this is right at the final part. You know, they've been in the boat with him for a bit. The storm has grown up. They don't moan or shout out or cry out instantaneously. It's only when it comes to the point where they're going to die. They fear for their life. Or think of the man who's been possessed by demons. It says, for a long time. The pain of it being possessed by demons, being cut off, living amongst the tombs, the inhumanity, the woman, the bleeding, the embarrassment, the pain, the social ostracization, and then Jairus, the hardest one of all, death, but not just any death, death of a child? Oh, enter into the emotional reality of this. What would it be like if that was you? You know, it's one thing to say, I'll trust you, Jesus, when everything's going well, but what if that was your child? What if that was you with bleeding? What if that was you in the boat? How would you feel? Soft-hearted, deep-hearted, undivided at that moment? That's when it gets difficult, right? And then add on the delay, because in all four instances, there's a delay. Again, in the storm, they're in the boat for quite a while before the storm comes up, and then it has to escalate until it's to the point of death. With the demoniac, we're told that he's been there for a long time. Nothing's happened for years for the woman, it's 12 years. That's over a decade. And for Jairus, it's because Jesus delays. 
that she dies. And this is the same Jesus who is able to say a word to the centurion without even going to see the centurion's servant in the early parts of chapter 7 and just heal. So why doesn't he do that for Jairus? Friends, this is probably the hardest thing, I think, of the Christian life. The delay. Don't you find yourself saying this? Look, Jesus, if you really love me, why, why so long? The great echo of the prophets, how long, O oh Lord? If you're God, you could do it all right now, so why don't you do it right now? It's not like I haven't prayed. How many times pastorally have I sat with people who are saying, look, Peter, I, 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 I'm wanting to trust Jesus, but it's just been going on so long. And so the heart hardens slowly over time. Hearts don't start off hard. Children don't have hard hearts. It's a function of adulthood and difficulties embedding, and you either get better or you get bitter, right? You either trust Jesus or you become hard-hearted, and you might not start there first month, six months in, a year in, but watching a loved one suffer, and you say, Lord, you can do all things. You rose from the dead. Why don't you? A church praying is the delay. So here's the challenge, my friends. God has not promised this side of the new creation that he will heal us from all of these afflictions. He has promised that finally he will one day, but right now we live in the pain of it and with the delay of it. And so in the midst of that, he says to you, keep your heart soft, keep your heart deep, keep your heart undivided to me. You might say, well, Pete, that's great in theory. How do I do that? Well, I wonder if one of the ways we do that is realize that in all of this, you notice Jesus is not distant. You know, the disciples say, Master, Master, don't you care if we're drowned, but who are they talking to? They're talking to the one who's in the boat. He's in the boat. And if I can put it like this to you, if you're suffering right now, do you know that Jesus is in the boat with you? He's in the boat. He's there. He's not distant. His spirit is with you. He identifies particularly to those who are brokenhearted, who are suffering. He draws alongside you. He's right there. He's in the boat with you. And you say, look, I'd love to believe that. How can I believe that? You can believe it because of what he's done for you. Don't you think that the one who has gone to the cross for you, who has gone through that for you and has risen up the other side, has now sent his spirit into the world, is with you in the midst of whatever you're going through? As you face the storms of life, know this, Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate storms of God's judgment on the cross so that you might know that thing that the disciples experienced when Jesus calmed the storm, peace. If you're worried about the spiritual realm, if you're starting to realize that there is a spiritual realm and what might this mean for me, know this, Jesus said to the devil and all the spiritual forces set up against God on the cross, do your worst to me. I'll take it all so you can let them go free. Because the debt has been canceled. You're free. They have no power over you. If you trust in Jesus, you are liberated. He's disarmed the strong man. If you're dealing with a stubborn disease or illness and you're longing for some kind of deliverance, you don't know whether you're going to get it, maybe cancer, maybe a sudden diagnosis, and you don't know what's going to happen this side of the new creation, know this. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. And if you're worried about the ultimate enemy of all, death, maybe your own that feels too close to home, maybe someone else that you love very, very much, 
and you're wanting God to do something in their lives, know this. Jesus, the author of life, died and then rose again to prove that he's dealt with death so that you can have eternal life. Is he distant? No, he's not distant. He's gone through the cross, came out the other side so he can be with you in the boat. So how do you keep a soft heart? Know that. Know that he's powerful to save. Know that he sees you with great compassion and knows what you're going through. And know that he's not distant from you, but he's right there alongside you. And as you get that and apply that and renew that in your heart day by day, that is how you keep a soft, deep, and devoted heart. So don't start attaching to other things. Don't look for easy ways out. There are no such things as an easy way out in the Christian life. Keep clinging to Jesus. Trust his word of salvation to you. And know that one day he will deliver you. And at that day, it will all be worthwhile. But for now, we live in the pain of this world. We live in the delay of this world. So keep your heart soft, deep, and devoted. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I wonder if we become hard-hearted over a period of time as we stop believing that you really can deliver us. I wonder if we become shallow-hearted over time as we think it's not worth it and we start attaching ourselves to other things. I wonder if we become divided over time as we start putting conditions on our faith. Help us not to be that way, but to be soft-hearted, deep-hearted, devoted and undivided, Lord, as we trust you and see your beauty, your power, your compassion in the Lord Jesus Christ. May that reassure us that salvation is coming. And whilst it might feel like to us there's a delay, one day soon all things will be made new. Help us to hold on to that, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.